0: behavioral psychologists have come up with new views not only of animal behavior but of human nature as well and these views all concern a process that we take for granted learning because we are all truly born to learn ironically one of the most important figures in the study of learning Ivan Pavlov wasn't concerned with the subject at all at least not at first Pavlov a noted Russian scientist won the Nobel Prize for Physiology and Medicine in 1904. Pavlov was initially interested in digestion and the action of the salivary glands. By diverting the saliva of dogs into test tubes he could precisely measure if and how much they salivated during digestion. When food was presented the dog salivated quickly an inherited salivary reflex. But over repeated testings a strange thing happened. The dog salivated before contact with the food. Just the sight of the food was enough to stimulate their drooling. Then just seeing the food dish or even hearing the footsteps of Pavlov or his assistants was enough to trigger this built-in reflex. What was going on to elicit this response? Pavlov decided to find out by systematically varying the stimuli and measuring the dog's reaction. Metronomes, lights and bells were all used as stimuli and they all worked as stand-ins for the food. What mattered was not the kind of stimulus that was used but the fact that it reliably signaled that food was on the way. Pavlov had discovered a fundamental type of learning called classical conditioning. An original stimulus elicits an automatic unlearned response. Both stimulus and response happen naturally they are unconditioned then a second neutral stimulus that never elicits the unconditioned response by itself is introduced just before the presentation of the original stimulus if the neutral or signaling stimulus is presented alone and a response occurs as if the original stimulus were still there, we say that conditioning has taken place. The arbitrary neutral stimulus becomes a conditioned stimulus. The reverse is also true. Pavlov and others studied the extinction over time of such conditioned responses. When the subject learns that the conditioned stimulus no longer signals a desired event, the acquisition process is reversed as the learned connection is gradually weakened. Pavlov's work and the work of those who followed him led to a remarkable conclusion. And that is, any stimulus an organism can perceive is capable of eliciting any reaction the organism is capable of making. This means that virtually any sound, sight or smell and influence the way our muscles tense or relax our moods fluctuate or even the way our attitudes are formed for instance if i say relax and then do this you're going to be startled and upset after five or six pairings of relax just saying the word relax is going to generate a negative response rather than its usual learned reaction
1: not only to those of you here with us in the ambassador Theater but to the many thousands who are listening in their cars and homes by way of KC95FM. It's with much more than a normal amount of pleasure that I introduce this band to
2: you.
1: This band is not only comprised of seven incredible musicians, who I feel certain will take their place among the heavyweights of the rock and roll world. I think what's much more
2: important to all of us is that they're not from Germany, they're not from England, they're not even from California, they're from the streets of St. Louis, they're
3: The band that became Pavlov's Dog originally formed in St. Louis in 1972 under the rather unwieldy moniker Pavlov's Dog and the Condition Reflex Soul Rescue and Concert Choir. The band formed around the rhythm section, drummer Mike Saffron and bassist Doug Rayburn. Saffron envisioned the band with an orchestral rock sound, quote, strings instead of horns so he recruited a flamboyant, pipe-smoking violinist named Richard Nadler, who adopted the stage name Siegfried Carver. Next came singer and guitarist David Sirkamp. Sirkamp had a peculiar, high-pitched voice, but the skinny hippie with the waist-length hair impressed Saffron nonetheless. If anything, his talents and approach were unique at the time and would help the band stand out. The lineup was completed by keyboardist David Hamilton, who had learned by playing along with his parents' Gershwin and jazz records, bassist Rick Stockton, whose recruitment allowed Doug Rayburn to switch to Mellotron, and lead guitarist Steve Scorfina, who grew up inspired by very early rock and roll, and had previously been a member of Illinois Stalwart's REO Speedwagon. Each band member had his own perspective, but their collective influences would be mostly prog bands like Soft Machine, Gentle Giant, Genesis, and King Crimson. A quote from David Surkamp, When I was in high school, there was this drugstore, a pharmacy, that carried albums and 45s that were actually cheaper there than if I'd gone to a record store. And I saw the very first King Crimson album, In the Court of the Crimson King. And I bought it, just from the cover artwork. I had no idea what it sounded like, and I didn't know who they were, but I had three dollars in my pocket. That kind of opened my mind a lot, to be pushing myself a lot harder and to sophistication. In the early days, the members of Pavlov's Dog lived together in a rented Victorian mansion in Central West St. Louis, where they fastidiously wrote and rehearsed. A quote from guitar player Steve Scorfina: Pavlov's Dog was a glorious, unique sound crafted by seven individuals. Like a good Cajun jambalaya, you have to have all the right ingredients and spices to make it good. In October of 1973, the band booked some time at Golden Voice Studios in Pekin, Illinois to record what they hoped would be their self-produced debut album. With no producer or record label to answer to, they recorded ten tracks, about half of which would be recorded a year later for their major label debut, while the other half, some of their more progressive tunes, like Time, Dreams, and Ship," would remain unreleased until 2014. Guitar player Steve Scorfina sang lead vocals on the demo It's All For You, a song that would eventually find its way onto the third unreleased Pavlov's Dog album, recorded in 1977, and keyboardist David Hamilton also sang lead on some of the demos.
2: The waters shine lightly, the crew are his friends. He sails through an ocean where days are their own. Mexicans, the clipper ship sailing, it cuts like a knife. Oh, the clipper ship sailing, it cuts like a
3: knife. Oh, 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 oh. Drummer Mike Saffron handled management duties in the band's earliest days. But they soon signed on with a regional promoter named Ron Powell, who volunteered to manage them. Soon the record labels were sniffing around, and Powell landed the band a seemingly lucrative deal with ABC, negotiating a record-setting $650,000 advance. A quote from guitar player Steve Scorfina about Ron Powell. Unfortunately, he was a con man, although it took us a while to figure that out. Even though we signed what was at that point the biggest contract in the history of the record industry for an unknown group, none of us received anything out of it, because we were taken to the cleaners by Ron Powell. Eventually he was taking all the money from the concerts and the albums and investing it in all kinds of illegal activities. He ended up getting busted by the IRS and thrown in jail. He spent a lot of his life in jail." Somehow, Paul managed to convince Blue Oyster Cult producers Sandy Perlman and Murray Krugman to produce the debut album by Pavlov's Dog, entitled Pampered Menial. Even this early on, the band dynamics started to break down, as members grumbled that the producers were more interested in the songs written by Sir Camp and ignoring their contributions. It was the beginning of the end for the band, already. As keyboardist Doug Rayburn remembered, quote, The circle was broken. A quote from David Surkamp, It's just the way my art is, the way I think. I don't do very much stuff that's premeditated. I can pick them like an antenna. I guess there are songs out there and I just grab them out of space and time. Julia is the first track on Pampered Menial. It's a folky ballad centered around the acoustic guitar, but with a big orchestrated chorus and a flute solo. The second song on the album, Late November, is a march of sorts, with prominent electric guitar bits, but a very layered recording with a lot going on. Up next on Pampered Menial is a song called Song Dance, a very cool heavy rocker with a violin solo and a wild guitar solo. The centerpiece of Pampered Menial is probably the heavily arranged folk ballad, Theme from Subway Sue. The song's title came about as the result of the band's violinist mishearing Sir Camp's original title, Someday Soon. Theme from Subway Sue is probably the kind of song that saw the band labeled as a progressive rock group by some. As David Sir Camp put it, My vision was that we were an orchestrated electric folk group. I know we were hard to label. Later on, people said we were Prague. Maybe because we had too many keyboard players and a violinist. (laughs) Pampered Menial is definitely a strong album, although some of the songs are weighed down by just too many instruments, all seven band members jockeying for a position in the mix. Just as the album was finished, the head of ABC, Jay Lasker, who had championed the band, quit the label, and his replacement took one look at the band's huge advance and lost his shit. As the story goes, ABC traded the band to Columbia for Poco. Along came another $600,000 advance, which, supposedly, was pocketed by Powell. The debut originally arrived in stores in early 1975 on two different record labels with two different covers. It was a mess. Nevertheless, the band hit the road to support the record, opening for bands like Blue Oyster Cult, of course, given their connections with Sandy Pearlman and Murray Krugman, along with Aerosmith, ELO, Slade, and Jefferson's Starship. Some in the crowds were puzzled, some delighted, but Pavlov's dog consistently divided audiences wherever they went. There was really nothing else like them in America at the time. They did open some shows for Rush, an obvious band to compare them with, but mostly, really, just because of the similarity between the singers. Additional shows opening for Kraftwerk and Nectar probably made a little more sense, but the band struggled to build a substantial audience. A quote from Sir Camp: We built a reputation, but it could be dismal. Oddly, the best gig we did was in Austin, Texas, at the Armadillo World Headquarters. I thought the rednecks would hate us, a heavy symphonic rock group in a country stronghold, but it was a hip place and they went crazy for us. As the band traveled, they discovered that the album might be rather popular in one city, virtually unknown in the next. It was the era of regional success, where radio programmers had a lot more autonomy. For their second album, At the Sound of the Bell, which came out in 1976, Tom Nickerson was added to the lineup as guitar player, but he soon switched to keyboards, following the departure of David Hamilton. David Sircamp became even more of the focal point as they recorded the second album in New York. Perhaps he was more ambitious than the others. Sircamp also insisted that they hire some top session men, like Yes drummer Bill Bruford and Roxy Music sax player Andy McKay. A quote from Sircamp: "We were getting into a bad situation. I mean, the band was falling apart. We'd done a few tours supporting Pampered Menial." and our original drummer couldn't keep up with the direction I was going. I was ready to throw in the towel, but I sat around with Sandy Perlman and Douglas Rayburn and said, we've got to do something here. I can't see us try and record the album with all this sophisticated music and not be able to perform it properly. And the big part of the problem is a rhythm section to keep up. Sandy asked, look, who's your favorite drummer? I mentioned Bill Bruford and a few other guys. Bruford's presence at the recordings bemused the band's actual drummer, Mike Saffron. A quote from Saffron, I even let him use my drums, and I drove him around like I was a chauffeur. Carver and Hamilton had already left the group, and I thought the spirit had gone. When Bruford came, the producers told me it was good for publicity, so I just stood back, in the general interest. I was told I would be credited as a full-time member, But when the album came out, I got no credit, so I quit. They gave me $4,000, and I agreed to tour for the next few months. That's because after the recording of the album was completed, Bruford returned home to England and joined Genesis as their touring drummer. Sandy Perlman followed Bruford, taking the At The Sound Of The Bell tapes over to London to mix the album at the Who's Ramport Studios. While over there, sandy added a boy's choir to the song valkyrie to Sir Camp's delight and everyone else's annoyance as for the album title a quote from Sir Camp: the sound of the bell itself was pavlov's scientific project but when i think of a sound of the bell it goes back to victor hugo it was just a little pun probably a bad one i did a lot of reading when i was growing up i didn't get out a lot so i read a lot and I guess some of that stuff just stuck with me. In terms of arrangements and production for the second album, they really seem to scale things back. Opening track She Came Shining is a much more conventional recording, less layered and chaotic than much of the first album, but there are still some proggy bits. The second song on the album, Standing Here With You, is a string-laden ballad, simplified and straightforward. Unfortunately, most of the elements that made the first album unique, impressive, and cool are missing, stripped away. Third song, Mersey, is basically a soft rock song and not great. Early Morning On would be the song that reminds me the most of Pampered Menial and the band's original sound. So, singer David Surkamp had pretty much taken over for the second album, and it ended up being less arranged, but more produced. A pretty bland record. It might have sold a few more copies than the debut, but was still not a huge success. A quote from Surkamp, I think it was the direction I was trying to have all along. I'd never thought of us as a heavy metal band or anything. I really like it when it's sophisticated, but I really care that it has something melodic in there. And I like those weird time signatures and stuff. It's probably a weakness of mine. Sandy Perlman, who had been a big supporter of the band, started having his doubts. A quote from Sandy, They sounded great, but apart from Surcamp, they lacked stage presence. They seemed to have a lot of keyboard players. People were pulling in different directions. In any case... By that time I was working with the dictators, and I couldn't give Pavlov's dog enough attention. Guitar player Steve Scorfina, for one, was glad to be rid of the producers. Quote, they swamped our records in reverb. They wouldn't let Mike play drums. They ignored our suggestions about mixing. For Sir Camp, the problem lay within the group. Quote, Sandy was great. He didn't seem to interfere. He was enthusiastic and he had ideas I could understand. Another quote from Sir Camp. By the time the second record was over, I was finished. It just took me a while to extricate myself from the recording contract. By the time the third record came around, everybody in the band thought they were the songwriter. But of course, none of them could write a song to save their lives. It was just getting ugly. A quote from Steve Scorfina, We were doing a lot of major tours across the states and we really weren't making any money. Everybody in the band was on $180 a week. We had the opportunity to go to Australia and Europe and do concert tours there, but it wasn't in Ron Powell's best interest to let us do that, so it didn't happen. In fact, the sooner the band split up, the better it was for him, because he'd taken all the money from the band and was using it for other business ventures. So once the band split, there was less chance of him being caught. David Surkamp believes that the band should have moved to Europe. Quote, We got no support at all from the American media, but plenty from the press over there. Rolling Stone ignored us altogether, and I remember that Cream magazine reviewed Pampered Menial with Flo and Eddie from the Turtles, who just made fun of us. I wanted to try something wonderful, which is why I insisted on the session men, but I also had a clear idea of what I wanted, and the others didn't. My instrument was my voice and my songwriting, which is romantic, nostalgic, and about love. I'm not a hit machine. I'm not the Brill Building. There was a lot of pressure. I may be an acquired taste, but no one will ever accuse me of shoplifting any tunes. I've always staked out my own territory. The third album would be Make or Break, especially since the band's manager, Ron Powell, had invested most of their money in dealing cocaine. They were forced to use a local St. Louis jingle studio, Technosonic, and new producers, John Jansen and Mark Spector. A quote from Sir Camp: It was a mess. I like Mark. We spent a lot of time wrestling in the studio and playing with my Boston Terrier, Charlie, who used to sleep in the bass drum even while we were playing. Columbia heard the tapes for the third album and rejected it, so Sircamp and Doug Rayburn colluded with manager Ron Powell, stole the master tapes, and flew to New York to finish it at the record plant with some session guys, including guitar player Jeff Skunk Baxter. A quote from Sircamp "'I walked away and didn't say anything. There were drug issues. Guys were on downers and speed.' I took the tapes to New York City and hooked up with two former Steely Dan guitarists, Elliot Randall and Jeff Skunk Baxter. I wasn't getting along with anybody and it was horrible. It was just horrible, so I wanted out. I think they did a demo without me and presented it to Columbia, and there wasn't a single song that worked. So our manager basically put me in a hotel room with one of the guys from the road crew, a friend of mine from high school, and I just kind of locked myself in this room with a piano, a guitar, a mandolin, and a tape recorder. And I knocked out what eventually became, has anyone seen Siegfried? We tried to record that as a band, but halfway through, it was getting so awful. So Douglas Rayburn and I took the master tapes, went to New York, and finished it there. Another quote from Sir Camp: I rewrote the album in two weeks. Baxter was funny. He smoked a lot of pot, and when he wasn't playing, he seemed to spend his time having huge arguments on the phone with the Doobie Brothers, screaming about his royalties. Even with a finished third album, Columbia stopped returning their calls. A quote from SirCamp: They went cold. They didn't like it at all. And since I'd quit the group, the band didn't have a lead singer. You couldn't blame them. Bizarrely, the group tried to carry on without me, using a guitar technician as singer. They ended up sounding like a southern rock group. The working title for the unreleased third album was Has Anyone Here Seen Siegfried? which related to violinist Siegfried Carver's departure from the band. I have to say, it was a more ambitious album than the second record, even though Camp seems to be very proud of that second album. The third album was bootlegged, but didn't get an official release until 2007, 30 years after it would have originally come out. The song Painted Ladies stands out to me as a song that would have fit very well on the band's first album.
2: Well, it's been here.
3: Also included on the at-the-time unreleased third Pavlov's Dog album is a great commercial-sounding potential single, a pretty great power-pop song called I Love You Still. Ooh. seems that the band had been over for a while but they were definitely done after the third album was shelved by the label sir camp packed his bags and headed for seattle with a few dollars a fender 12 string and a melotron quote i had no regrets and fewer possessions eventually i hooked up with ian matthews Ian Matthews was an original member of the British folk rock band Fairport Convention. He left in 1969 to form his own band, Matthews' Southern Comfort. The band went through various different lineups and toured extensively for the next two years. In 1971, Matthews recorded two solo albums, If You Saw Through My Eyes and Tigers Will Survive, for Vertigo Records. He then formed a band called Plain Song and released an album called In Search of Amelia Earhart. After Plainsong collapsed due to a bandmate's alcoholism, Matthews took himself and his career to Los Angeles. He released a slew of solo albums. Valley High in 1973, produced by Michael Nesmith, Journeys from the Gospel Oak and Some Days You Eat the Bear in 1974, Go For Broke in 1976, Hit and Run in 1977, Stealin' Home in 1978, Siamese Friends and Discreet Repeat in 1979, and probably my favorite of his solo albums, Spot of Interference in 1980. According to Matthews' website, he had, quote, "...been struggling for nearly 15 years and was still living hand-to-mouth, with nothing to show for his efforts but a string of out-of-print albums and the loyalty of those musicians and fans who shared his vision." Dejected, he moved from Los Angeles to Seattle, and there he met David Surkamp, and they decided to form a band together, which they called Hi-Fi. They added a third guitarist named Bruce Hazen, and their debut five-song EP, Hi-Fi Demonstration Record, was recorded live. Nine o'clock from that album is a killer song from Surcamp. Hi-Fi then recorded a full-length album, Moods for Mallers, released by Shanghai Records in 1983. It's a strong record. My favorites would be Sir Camp's Walk Away and Matthew's Blue Shirt.
2: I can feel I can feel I can feel I can feel it.
3: Hi-Fi was a cool band, but unfortunately short-lived. Ian Matthews landed another solo deal and moved to London with guitar player Bruce Hazen to make a record called Shook. Matthews has continued to release albums since, here and there. Sir Camp ended up back in St. Louis, where Pavlov's Dog reunited and released an album in 1990 called Lost in America. Sir Camp continues to keep a version of the band going to this day.
2: Had to do something. You were already gone. In a whole lot of trouble. And we couldn't get on. You're making me crazy. It's a happy year lost in America. In America. I can't see it all, and I don't know where or why you or I could never find more in a whole lot of trouble. Just laughing it off in America.